Welcome back to I've Tried Everything, a podcast focusing on behavior supports in schools. I'm your host, Angela Eisenberg, Project Coordinator at Region 13. Every week, I talk with educators just like you. We cover some tough topics, share stories, and explore what works and what doesn't. Let's go. I am very excited today to be joined by my boss, Albert Feltz, here at Region 13. Albert, you and I have had a working relationship for well over 20 years. You started with me back as a Melio gen ed teacher on a, on a high school campus doing positive behavior interventions and supports. How have you seen behavior from when you first started working with me 20 years ago to now? How have you seen behavior change? I think one of the things that continues to evolve and continues to be a bit of a navigational challenge for staff is the fact that we are better consumers of what behavior support looks like than we've ever been in the past. So in the past, if someone had a behavior challenge, we would identify them, we would put them in a specialized program, we would give them support, and that would be the end of it. They either made progress or they didn't make progress. Now, we have multiple options out there, and if something doesn't work, we have better educated parents, better educated teachers, and the levels of intervention are dramatically larger and the opportunities are dramatically larger for the supports that we can provide to kids. So thinking about students in that 20 years that I've known you, how have you seen behavior change, especially after the pandemic? I don't necessarily see that behavior has changed as much as our response to behavior has changed. We have spent a lot of time over the last year and a half talking about learning gaps and learning gaps specifically as it relates to academic learning. What we fail to address sometimes is that there's also been social behavioral gaps that were developed during that time. So opportunities for kids to learn social skills, opportunities for kids to learn appropriate ways to have school behavior. So last year, I spent most of my time in second grade classrooms. And as a result of that, here's what I learned. I learned that a lot of our second graders were acting like kindergarten students, not because they had developmental challenges that caused them to act like kindergarten students, but because the last time they were in school, they were in pre-K or kindergarten. So they had not learned how to be a second grade student. Our response typically is, this kid's not acting like a second grade student, therefore they must be a behavior challenge, as opposed to taking a step back and saying, I need to remember that they haven't learned those skills yet. So just like If there's a reading gap, we need to reteach reading. If there's a behavioral gap, we need to teach the skills they need to have in order to better become the type of student we expect to see in second grade. So thinking about that skill gap, there's definitely a place in education for positive behavior interventions and supports, restorative practices, leadership and character development. One of the processes that we've embraced at Region 13 over the last maybe year and a half is Leader in Me. So thinking about Leader and Me, why are you so jazzed about this process? Leader and Me is a program that is based on Franklin Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. When we think about those seven habits, being proactive, beginning with the end in mind, putting first things first, thinking win-win, seek first to understand, then be understood, to synergize and to sharpen our saw. When we think about those skills, 
Those skills really, for me, are the last best hope we have for students. But also, it really is re-energizing, and it's an opportunity for adults to have renewal. I think we have all struggled over the last three years, thinking about how do we navigate the new norm? How do we deal with the fact that we did have a period of time where we were not in schools, but the expectation was that learning was still going to occur? We also had a period of time where we've had extensive amounts of mental health challenges, as well as increased anxiety. We have lots of people that have dealt with loss over the last three years. And as a result of that, we need an opportunity to give people skills, to inspire hope. And more importantly, we need to make sure that we are allowing our students to become their best possible selves. For me, the Leader in Me program is about hope. And I think sometimes we move away from the opportunity to talk about hope and look at what can we do to have students become inspired to be their best possible selves at the end of the day. We've had lots of conversations, you and I, about you have to start with staff behavior before you move to student behavior. Is Leader in Me starting with staff and addressing staff behavior first and then moving into that student level? Is that kind of the process for Leader in Me? Absolutely. The process for Leader in Me is we begin with the adults. Uh, if we are not switching and, and working on changing their paradigms, it's really hard for us to see students in a different light. One of the five basic paradigms that I really land on with Leader in Me is moving away from that some kids are gifted to everybody has genius. And if I think about that, and I have that in the front and center of my mind, sometimes finding the genius in somebody takes a little bit longer and it's a little bit deeper dive, but everybody has potential. Everybody has genius. It just may not look like the genius that we expect somebody to have sitting in a row in a school, doing what we ask them to do, being on task, doing all the things that typical students look like. So it's out-of-the-box thinking around really how do we meet students where they're at to get them maybe where we want them to be. Exactly. So... I had the great opportunity last week to sit in a training with you on moving away from this idea of motivating the unmotivated from a motivation issue to an inspirational issue. Talk to me about how that we need to embrace this concept to help motivate students differently. Well, I believe what you're talking about is one of my new favorite leadership books that I've read, and it's Trust and Inspire by Stephen M. R. Covey. And in the Trust and Inspire concept, one of the things that he talks about is that motivation really is based on a carrot and stick principle. If we think about motivation, if you do this, you get something from me for doing this, or if you continue to do this and I don't like it, then there's going to be some kind of consequence that hopefully will change your behavior. Motivation is all about us doing something to somebody else, moving them from point A to point B. When we look at inspiration, it's about tapping into what internally is intrinsically there for us and how to unleash that full potential and allow people to be their best possible selves based on what they are bringing to the table, not what we think they should bring to the table. So it's about really student empowerment, right? It's it's empowering them to drive their own education and their own process through their own inspiration. It's about having belief. Mm. And it's about believing in being able to do the right thing if they are inspired to do it. 
But that really has to have that element of trust in place, I think, in both ways, right? The student has to be able to trust educators and the educators have to be able to trust students for that to actually play out, right? Absolutely. The basic premise of the book is that we have to move from a command and control way of leading to a trust and inspire way of leading. And if you think about command and control, it's all about, I put parameters in place, I tell you what you need to do, and then I monitor it to make sure that it's done, as opposed to believing that people are going to do the right thing. And our job is to make sure that we remove the barriers, inspire them to want to do the right thing at the end of the day. It's, it's a mindset change. It's a change in our paradigm. It kind of takes me to the social discipline window for restorative practices where that you look at the control and belief and nurturing that, that needs to be in place support. If you're high in support and you're high in control, then you are in that with category. You're not doing things for students. You're not doing things to students. You're doing things with students. So it sounds like we need to be in that with realm so that we are working with students for their own success through inspiration and trust. Absolutely. At the end of the day, I think we need to stop telling people what to do and we need to start doing things with people. Wouldn't that also be the same with staff? Absolutely. Because uh, I, I, of course, I'm a TikToker, so Albert knows all about my um, guilty uh, obsession with TikTok and definitely teacher TikTok. But I, I really enjoy seeing some of the and hearing some of the teachers talk about the things that they're being asked to do instead of and, or told to do instead of engaging them in that process. So huge teacher TikTok. We were, I fangirled the other day with uh the subbing superintendent that we had at our curriculum council. So Albert, if you had to pick like your top three strategies for teachers, educators, out of school time staff dealing with behavior, what would be your top three strategies that you would recommend for teachers or uh, staff to have in their tool belts? First and foremost, I think we need to have clear expectations procedures, and routines, and we need to do it in a way that it becomes a habit. So I I think instructional habits are incredibly valuable. Habits for me are the number one source of what classroom management should be driven off of. Think about how important habits are to you in your day-to-day life. How many times have you ever gotten your car, Angela, and driven to the service center and gotten here and not realized how you got here? Uh, yes. And then days that I wasn't supposed to be coming to the service center, but my mind automatically, I just get in the car and I start driving and I'm like halfway here and I'm like, I'm not going to the service center today. I'm going somewhere else. <laughs> That's a habit. Same thing. It's like most of us in the morning when we get up, we get dressed the exact same way. We use the same process. We do follow the same routine. And if something interrupts that routine, it messes up our morning. If you think about the power of habit, try sleeping on the opposite side of the bed tonight. You will have the worst night's sleep of your entire life, even though it's the exact same bed. But you will feel uncomfortable. You will feel like something's wrong. You will toss and turn because you're not following your habits. So one, create really powerful instructional habits. Create really powerful instructional procedural expectations. The second is clear as kind. Going back to Brene Brown, making sure that I'm giving clear feedback to kids about what they're doing, 
what they're not doing and making sure that when they are doing what they're doing, I'm paying attention to it. So again, making sure that I am keeping first and foremost the concept of feedback because it's not the severity of consequence that changes the behavior. It's the certainty that a consequence happens every time the behavior occurs. And feedback in itself is a consequence. If every time you do something that I don't want you to do, and I say, Angela, that's not okay. That's feedback. That's a consequence. And sometimes it's as simple as that, that it changes behavior. But it's the consistency of me giving feedback that's going to do that. It's not the I let it slide, I let it slide, I let it slide, and then the fifth time you do it, I have an emotional reaction, and then suddenly the sky is falling. Yeah. So really making sure that I'm spending time focusing on on that level of feedback. The last, and I think the third most important thing, is really not taking it serious. You have to keep a sense of humor. Kids are incredibly funny, and they will do some of the most entertaining and inappropriate things Let's be honest. They're they're (laughs) going to do some inappropriate things. But the minute that we become angry, we have an emotional response, we become um, frustrated, it's no longer helpful for the student and it's no longer helpful for us. So I really always go into, even with my most toughest kids that I work with, always go into it with an open mind and realize at the end of the day, they're just kids. And I have to remember... They're just kids doing the best they can with the skills that they have. Yeah. I kind of have this idea that if you don't laugh at least once a day, then maybe education isn't for you because kids are so funny. They crack me up. I mean, the things that they say, some of the things that they do, I find myself laughing all the time and I probably laughing inappropriately because I'm encouraging that misbehavior to happen, but they, they are definitely funny. When you talk about the habit before with one of your first strategies for teachers, one of the things that I see teachers, and I've tried everything, and that's kind of the reason why that we named this the the I Tried Everything podcast, is that teachers will try something for like a day, and then they give it up and not give something enough time to form a habit with that intervention, that strategy to see over time, is that making a difference? And they they'll say, oh, I I gave it a couple of days and it didn't work. And so the response that I have for teachers is if you go to the gym, the first day that you go to the gym, do you lose your desired weight? Wouldn't that be nice, right, Albert? (laughs) If I like only had one one day ago. Did you just call me fat? (laughs) Definitely not. There's no shaming here. But if you don't lose your weight the first day you go, and that's the only chance I'm going to give myself, then... I would never, you know, it'd never work out. Um, It's about going to the gym. Uh, Research says 21 days, right? I have to form a habit. I have to go consistently. And after 21 days, I assess, right? You look at progress. Are my clothes fitting better? Is the scale and the number going down? Does my face look slimmer? So you're looking at that progress piece because that makes us keep going. So when we're looking at that challenging behavior, we also have to think about, where's our progress that we've made? Before that kid was throwing a tantrum every day for 45 minutes, now we're still throwing a fit every day, but now that fit is only 15 minutes. So we're making progress to wherever we're going instead of that complete elimination of the behavior. And that's the ultimate goal. That's what everybody wants. They want it just to go away, but really it's about progress, right? Absolutely. And you brought up a good thing as far as habits go. I think people think they have really good tight 
procedures and they're doing things in a way that creates a habit. But when I have multiple different ways that I ask students to do things every single day, I end up never creating a habit. What I end up is creating a menu of potential options for kids. For example, I have two examples. I have an elementary example and a secondary example. Elementary example, lining up. The bane of every teacher's existence is getting kids to line up. Yes, I was there yesterday and it took them about nine minutes to line up. Part of that challenge is we have kids line up a different way every single day. Because we want kids to all feel special. We have a line leader. We have a caboose. We have a light flicker. We have a a door holder. We have a different process every day. Well, if I change the process every day, then I'm never going to have a consistent habit that's developed. So if you want kids to be able to line up, the first day of school, everybody lines up. The second day of school, everybody lines up the exact same way they did the first day of school. So... Angela, your head is in front of me. I'm looking at the back of your head for the entire school year. So I'm always standing behind Angela. I will learn how to line up within the first week of school if I line up the same way every single day. But Albert, I want to be the line leader. That's what I hear teachers say. Well, but other kids want to be in the front of the line. You know what, Angela? Kids really don't care. Adults make it an issue. That's why kids care about it. I will tell you, bless my mom's heart. I mean, there are four of us kids, and we were all four a year apart. So we used to fight to see who got to sit in the front seat of the car. So here was the rule. The oldest person in the car got to sit in the front seat. Because one day, you're going to be the oldest person in the front seat. But there was no arguing. So the oldest person in the car at that time was riding shotgun. And after that procedure was established, there was never arguments about it again. Because we just knew that was the rule. The rule was, if you're the oldest person in the car... You got to ride in the front seat. And eventually, you're the oldest person. So it was not, it was never a big deal. My secondary example is this. If I'm a secondary teacher, I'm a student at Region 13 Middle School, and I have seven teachers. And those seven teachers have seven different ways that they want me to turn in my homework. I will never learn how to successfully turn in my homework. So true. I make it too complicated. I make it too much thought process that goes into it. If I have one way that I'm turning my homework into all seven classes, there's a really good likelihood by the second week of school, I know how to turn my homework in. And my homework gets turned in at a much higher completion rate than if I'm trying to follow seven different procedures. Imagine as an adult, you were a classroom teacher. Imagine you having seven principals between your high school principal and you were a large high school and multiple APs. They all wanted lesson plans in a different way. So you had to write your lesson plan seven different ways to accommodate the needs of the seven different adults. How would that have worked for you? I would have been frustrated. I would have been overwhelmed and probably would have ended up disappointing somebody because there is no way that I could have handled that level of differentiation just for all of them. So yeah, I would be super frustrated. So think about that. Think about that audience when you are asking kids to do things. It's like, is this because the adults are wanting this or is this in the best interest of kids? So moving away from being teacher-centered to student-centered environment. So if I, as I listen to this podcast, I'm thinking if I am in a leader and that leadership role, Franklin Covey is probably some of the material from that leader in me, the trust and inspire, those 
those are some things that I might need to latch on to to move forward. And if I'm a teacher listening to this podcast, having clear habits, predictable routines, procedures, expectations, kindness is key of making sure that there's clear clarity and not taking things personal. Those are your takeaways from our time together. Is there anything else you feel like is important for our listeners to hear from you? I think that sums it up. I really appreciate you taking the time. I really appreciate you inviting me. It's always great to spend time with you. And I look forward to our long-term collaboration. You're my mentor for behavior. So it's always awesome to hear what you have to say and because I learn from you every time. So thank you very much for joining me, Albert. Thank you. Thanks for listening to I've Tried Everything. Join me next week as we continue on our journey for behavior supports in schools. Remember to subscribe and you can always find great resources at Region 13's website. Just search behavior. Talk to you next time.